0: Uh, What we're going to be doing uh, for the next few months is really what the church all around the world has done for centuries and centuries. Because during the weeks uh, leading up to and then right after Easter, we're going to be reflecting uh, in a more direct way, even than usual, on who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do for us. And we're going to be doing that by primarily looking at the book of Hebrews. We're going to be working our way systematically from beginning to end through the book of Hebrews over the next few months. Now, the letter to the Hebrews, and that's what it is, it's a letter uh, to a bunch of believers, uh, It's birthed in a particular concern. At the writer of the book, oh, the letter of Hebrews wants to urge these people he's writing to really to go all the way with Jesus, to persevere to the very end with Jesus. You see, these people had had some kind of initial conversion, they'd heard about Jesus, Uh, they'd come to believe in him for themselves, they'd encountered him, said they wanted to follow him, but then things got tough for them. Uh, The people this letter was written to, they were suffering in a whole range of different ways. Commitment to following Jesus had led to many of them being marginalized by their society. Some of them, they were facing, I think it's fair to say, pretty severe persecution. They had loved ones who were under attack. Their friends were departing the faith left, right and center. And of course, on top of all of that, there were the normal temptations in day-to-day life that they were grappling with. And then there's this whole set of things that they were finding increasingly hard to believe. I mean, Jesus teaches that? I mean, no one around here believes this kind of stuff. They were like, wait a minute, this was supposed to be a whole lot easier. And they were starting to struggle with their faith. And so the question arises, and uh, it's one of the questions that this book is trying to address. Uh, The question is, if God loves us so much, and if God genuinely wants the best for us, then why on earth is our life so hard? Any of you ever consider that question? A few of you, a few chuckles, yeah, and a hand raised at the front. Be enthusiastic, I've given you permission. Anyone ever wondered that? Yes, hooray! Right. Yes, wonderful question to ponder. Well, pretty much that's what this book is all about. Why is our life so hard and how do we get through life when it's so hard? And the answer to the book, which uh, we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks slash months, is really life is a journey. It's a journey from weariness into rest. It's a journey from alienation into the very presence of God. It's a journey from isolation into the very city of God. But the only way you're going to reach the end destination is by fixing your eyes on Jesus. Really the whole idea of this book is you don't get to the end just in your own efforts, you don't get to the end through quick sprints You get to the end through sustained commitment and reliance on Jesus over the long haul. And for our encouragement, the writer has one basic message. Don't give up. Please, do not give up, because through it all, Jesus is greater. Now, in the first few verses, uh, we immediately catch a glimpse into why Jesus is greater and why we should keep fixing our attention on him. So let's look at those verses. Let's pick it up in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through Jesus, his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance, and through the son, he created the universe the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. We learn at least three key things here. We learn that Jesus brings us something very, very important and we learn why he brings it and we also learn how it's got to change our lives and funny enough those are going to be my three points for the rest of my time with you this morning. First of all, what Jesus brings us. First thing we're told here in these verses is that God has spoken to us through Jesus His son and that Jesus expresses or reveals or communicates to us something of the very character or nature or personality of God. In other words, we're being told here in this passage that God is speaking directly to us, directly to me, directly to you through Jesus and not just to give you kind of random general information in your head. But no, so you can get to know him personally for yourself. He's actually communicating himself to us. It's absolutely stunning. He wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't just want us to know certain things and go through the motions in a kind of formal religious ways. No, well, he, know, he wants us to have himself, to know him to be close to him. So here in this passage we straight away get a glimpse of this personal God who speaks directly to us and he gives us his word because he wants us to know him for ourselves. But notice also that God doesn't just give us his word to do with as we wish, kind of take or leave it, I like this bit, I'm not so keen on this bit. Now through Jesus God gives us his final word In the past, God has spoken in many different ways, but now, today, through one way Jesus. He's saying that from now until the end of time, there is no fuller, no more final expression of who God is and what God says than Jesus. Full stop. No ifs or buts. Nothing further. This is it. let's just allow that to sink in. Because I think there is something incredibly wonderful about this. I've said it before, I'll say it again. God wants to communicate with us. That is such good news. God wants to speak to us. But there's also something kind of hard about this as well. When he speaks, this is the way it is, and that's it. That's final. Now I know that sounds a bit harsh and a bit contrary to the way we like to think in our culture today but if you think about it actually this is the way that all personal relationships work out. There is no or there can be no intimacy of relationship unless you are willing to accept the other person's finalities. Now what do I mean by that? Well let me give you an illustration. Before I married Helen, my wife have been kind of happily married for the best part of 22 years now. Uh, so uh, uh, when I did this talk the other week in the South Side, I got reprimanded by someone afterwards for making out that we didn't love each other and they're very concerned for the state of our relationship. So I, I ju- we love each other and, and everything's fine, okay? But for the sake of this illustration, before I married Helen, I imagined how we'd have this kind of wonderful, blissful, romantic, perfect relationship. And then we got married, and I discovered that I was sharing a house with someone who, and it's horrifying to think, contradicted me, and from time to time had a habit of disagreeing with me. Uh, In fact, I'll take it a step further, would argue with me, and had the sheer audacity to tell me things I didn't want to hear, and how much I tried to get her to behave a certain way and do things the way I would do them. She would insist on doing the opposite of how I do things. And I think it's fair to say I didn't like it. And I think it's also fair to say, for the sake of balance, the feelings were wholly, wholly mutual. It's like in the beginning of a marriage, you're crossing each other's wills. You're, you're contradicting each other. You're, you're kind of trying to find a way through disagreement. And over time, hopefully, you progress all of that to trying to find a way to negotiate some kind of compromise, a happy medium, so you can stay living in the same house as friends. But at some point, you realize there are some finalities. There are some things that, however much you nag, are never going to change. There are some ways in which this is just the way things Ah, and that's it. Really, at certain point, you have to wake up to the fact that unless you accept those finalities, you can't really have any more personal relationship. And if you won't accept that, then effectively the relationship is over. It's like you desire intimacy, but you want intimacy with another person. And that other person has a will and thinks about some things differently to the way you do. And so at some point, you're going to have to accept those finalities. Or else that's the end of the relationship. Do you understand? If you want meaningful relationship, in some way, you are going to have to adapt to the other person. You're going to have to adjust. Have any of you ever seen the film The Stepford Wives? a few tentative nods. Uh, I've got to admit, I've never seen it because the reviews, certainly of the more recent film, were absolutely rubbish. Uh, and so I didn't want to waste my time or my, my, my money by watching it. But I am familiar uh, with the basic plot line. So spoiler alert, if you think on the basis of this, you might want to watch the film, just cover your ears now. I- I'll kind of indicate when you can uncover your ears. But I think the basic plot line, for those who have seen it, just kind of nod and affirm what I'm saying, or or else stand up and contradict me if actually I've got it completely wrong. But I think this is right. The men of Stepford were so fed up with their wives arguing and being willful and disagreeing with them that they ended up coming up with this cunning plan of putting microchips in their wives' brains that made them kind of robotic and totally compliant. Those who have seen the film, is that kind of what happens? Yeah, a few few nods, so I'm on the right lines. Uh, they, They were just happy in the kitchen, whipping up for their husbands whatever the men wanted. But through it all, something was missing, because you cannot have a personal relationship with an appliance, with a machine, with a robot. You see, when the other person only ever says, yes, dear, whatever you say, dear, it sounds blissful to start off with, but actually, that isn't how real life works. That is not a real person you see there is no intimacy without adjusting to the other person's finalities now here's the reason I'm making such a big deal of this I regularly hear people even around the church saying stuff like well look I believe in God but this is the kind of God I believe and I think he's like this I I believe in a loving God but I cannot accept the idea of God ever judging people. There are some things in the Bible I think are great, really inspirational. I love this, but a whole lot of things surely we can't believe anymore. I mean, I can't accept this. I refuse to believe that. I certainly don't like this. Some things I accept, but other things I don't. But here's the thing. If you don't take the Bible as God speaking to us, how will this God of yours ever contradict you? How will this God of yours ever tell you anything that you don't want to hear? Oh, I don't believe this. I don't believe that. Fine, but I have a question. Have you effectively put a microchip in your God? Have you merely created a figment of your imagination, a God that is completely compliant with whatever you think? Do you have a real God, a God who can cross your will, a God who can contradict you. A God who can say things different to the way you think. Who's wise than you. Who sees things differently to you. Who's beyond your understanding in some way. Or do you effectively have a robot? A God who's happy to submissively go along with whatever you want. You say, well, look, uh, that's, that's okay, but I can't accept this part of the Bible. I mean, it is so offensive to our culture. Fine, but how will your God ever correct or challenge you then? How will that ever happen? It can't unless you accept the authority of the Word of God. It can't unless you're willing to admit there are some finalities about God. And dare I say, they may be different from the way you think. There are some things he says that even though you don't like it, you just have to adjust to. You have to accept them, otherwise you don't have a personal relationship. Listen, unless you're willing to accept the hard edges of what God's will is, of what God's Word is, unless you're willing to accept the things that God says that you don't like, you can't have an intimate personal relationship with Him. So first of all then, Jesus, and this is amazing, he brings us God's Word, brings the Word of God personally to us. He communicates to us what God is like, but his words are final. Let's move on. Secondly, let's look at why Jesus brings God's Word. Why can Jesus bring the final Word? What right has Jesus got to tell me what to do? Why should I listen to him? Well, there are so many reasons, but for the sake of time, let me just quickly show you three of them from these verses. First of all, if you remember it says, he, Jesus, created the universe and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Now just think of the sheer magnitude of that. He created the universe The other day, in preparation for this, I was reading that our solar system has a diameter of approximately 7.5 billion miles. So, if you were to get in your car after the meeting and start driving at a constant speed of, let's say, 65 miles an hour, to get right across our solar system would take you, how many years, any ideas? Quite a lot. Uh, yes, uh, if you think quite a lot, it would be 13,172 years. You're spot on. And that's just our solar system. Astronomers uh, so say there are over 100 billion solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And over 50 billion galaxies in the universe. I can't get my mind around that. It says here, Jesus created all that and holds it all together. Anyone here come anywhere close to that? Now I know, we can feel we've made a massive achievement, we're really proud that we constructed our wardrobe from Ikea. Or we're very pleased with ourselves that we managed to build up our own company. Jesus' creation is on a slightly different plane than yours. And I'd humbly suggest that probably earns him the right to speak into your life. But there's more. Secondly, we're told in verse 3 that Jesus radiates God's own glory. And none of you seem particularly impressed by that or particularly excited about that as a reason to listen to him. So let me try and help you again grasp why this is so breathtakingly good news. In the Old Testament, when Moses begins to lead the Israelites, the people of God, out of slavery in Egypt, something appears. At night, it's clearly fire And in the daytime, it looks more like a cloud. It's so awesome, so powerful, that when the Egyptian army, remember the story, they're pursuing the Israelites, it stops them in their tracks. For all their military might, power, and prowess, they just can't get past this cloud. There's another occasion where this cloud of glory comes down on Mount Sinai, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and no one can even touch the mountain, or else they'll die. And later on, when the temple is being dedicated under King Solomon, down it comes again. comes right into the temple, and anyone near can't even stand on their feet. They fall to the ground. Now, what is this? What is that cloud? It's the glory of God. It is God in a form that we can see. It is God in a form that somehow expresses a bit of his brilliance, his beauty, his majesty, his holiness, his otherness, his infinite, overwhelming, shattering superlativeness. Now here's the thing. You can't even gaze into the glory of the sun in the sky without it damaging your eyesight, can you? I mean it'll literally wreck your eyes and so how in the world could we even begin to look into the glory of God? I mean when his glory showed up in those passages in the Old Testament people fell to the ground people died. Put like that how could any of us ever come anywhere close to God Well, what we've been told here in Hebrews is that Jesus comes and he reveals God's glory in a form that you're able to personally relate to. In Christ, we see God's glory in a form you can have a personal relationship with. I'd humbly suggest that once again, this means we'd be wise to take his word seriously. Now, if you're still not convinced, I mean, you're you're a hard crowd to please. Let me let me give one more reason to try to convince you. Jesus, in this passage, it says, he's cleansed us from our sins and has sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Now, please, 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 do not let familiarity rob you of the sheer wonder of this. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus has made a way for us to be cleansed from our sins once and for all. He did it. He did it all so we don't have to. It's not down to our performance. It's not down to how good a week we've just had. It's not like we can blow it and lose it all by doing stuff that's wrong. It's all down to him. He's dealt with the root cause of all of the feelings that we have of guilt, of shame, of condemnation, judgment. He's done it all. Now just to explain the background to all of this, as some of you may know, the Jewish people had a sacrifice system to cover over their sins. It was a great picture, a great illustration of what Jesus would one day come and do, but it was never complete. Sacrifices, they were offered daily. Each family imagine this, had to go and participate uh, at least yearly, and the priest was always standing by the altar ready to offer these sacrifices. He'd never sit down because his work was never done, always more sacrifices to offer. But Jesus offered himself once for all as the perfect sacrifice for all sins, and then he sat down. And the reason he sat down is because There was nothing left for him to do, it was finished, it was done, he could sit down. When it comes to dealing with our sin, when it comes to dealing with your sin, the root cause of your separation from God, when it comes to making a way for you to know God, there really is nothing left to do, it's finished. Jesus has done it all, there's nothing more we need to do. Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation. And so, it says here, he sat down in the place of honour at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Now, the right hand is the place of special honour. In other words, this sacrificial saving work is recognised and authenticated by God the Father. He's given Jesus, the Son, the supreme position at his right hand in majesty. There is no higher place, which is why I think Jesus probably has every right to have the final word in our lives. Now, you may or may not be convinced, but it's probably time to move on. Thirdly, if you believe this, if you do, how must this change our lives? If we believe this, what should we do in response? Well, if you flip over to the beginning of chapter 2, I think we get the answer. The writer says this, verse 1, so as a result of what I've just said in chapter 1, so we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we may drift away from it. So two quick encouragements by way of application. Number one, whatever you do, do not ignore God's final word in Christ. God didn't come threatening judgment, he came in mercy, he came in grace, he came overflowing with love, he he willingly absorbed your judgment in your place if you believe in him. Seriously, if you won't listen to that, if you reject that, what hope is there for you? There's a parable, there's a story that Jesus told about a landlord. You may be familiar with the story. This landlord, he owned a vineyard. He sent a servant to check on how the workers were doing in his vineyard. The workers beat up the servant. And so he sends another one, beat up that servant, and another one beat him up. And so the landlord ended up sending his own son. I mean, surely they'll listen to him, but they kill him. And Jesus turns around to his audience and he says, look, I'm the son. And if you will not listen to me, what else can God the Father do? You know, I think we can actually take this parable of Jesus a step further. Because not only did Jesus come and they killed him, but he was also then resurrected. He came back to life again. I mean, it's one thing to kill him and shut him up, but when he then rises from the dead, miraculously resurrected, And you still ignore him? That moves from stubbornness to insanity. Now, I don't know. Maybe you kind of believe that Jesus is God. But if you're being honest, you'd say you're just not paying that much attention to him right now. You you certainly don't hate Jesus. You're just like, no, not now. I'm not a great time I mean, I've just got a load of other things going in my life at the moment, maybe one day. With respect, what are you waiting on? What else could God do? God became man and died for you. I mean, I can understand if you don't believe that. And I recognize we've probably got people in the room who are still exploring this for themselves, and you're, you're so welcome here. This is a safe place for you to come with your questions, your doubts, to, to work out whether it's true. I understand if you don't believe that's true. But if you do believe it, just to ignore it? I mean, what will it be like for you if you spurn the Son of God? God how you look him in the eye when you see him when you die and say, yeah, I I knew who you were, but I just didn't think it was that important. Others of you, let me ask this, does your reaction to Jesus match the weight of his glory? You see... My concern is, I think a lot of us can treat God a bit like a spiritual weatherman. We kind of flip him on first thing in the morning and may or may not pay attention to what he says. There's a lady called Elizabeth Elliot. She puts it like this. We've kind of touched on some of these themes already. It's similarly mind-blowing, but just stay with it. She says, think about this. If the distance between the earth and the sun, that's 93 million miles, If that distance was the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between the Earth and the nearest star would be the equivalent of a stack of paper 70 feet high. The distance across the galaxy, the diameter of our galaxy, would be a stack of paper the equivalent of 310 miles high. And our galaxy is just one little speck of dust in the universe as it is. If... I know it's just a big if, but if there is a person who holds all of that together with the word of his power, is this the kind of person you ask into your life merely to be your personal assistant? I mean, if Jesus is who he says he is, surely we're going to fall at his feet in complete surrender. We're going to obey everything he says without any hesitation whatsoever. There's a guy called N.T. Wright. He puts it like this. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself walked into our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us are unable to cope with saying either of those things condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. In other words, imagine that over here there's a group of people who believe that Jesus is God. They believe this message I've been trying to communicate today and they are bowing down. They are worshipping him with everything they've got that they're hanging on his every word. They're submitting to him in everything. Their whole life is all about him. They live to honour Jesus in every area of their life. And then imagine way over here, there's another group of people who are like, no, 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 no. Jesus is a figment of people's imagination. He's just a phony. And I'm going to give my life to telling everyone who will listen, Everyone I meet, they shouldn't follow this Jesus. I mean, he's a complete hoax, a charlatan, a fraud. They're wasting their lives if they follow him. Now, really, those are the only two logical positions to take. So, where are you? Where are you? NT Wright's pretty scathing observation is that most of us, including me, spend most of our time kind of in the shallow in-between. And he says that's nonsense. It makes absolutely no logical sense. Because when you read the Bible, when you read what Jesus said and did, when you experience it in your own life, when you meet Jesus, encounter him, you see what he's like, If it's true, then you've got to throw everything in your life down at his feet and say, Lord, command me. Either it's a sham, it's make-believe, he's wicked, he's a lunatic, he's a fraud, he's a charlatan, or else every single part of your life has got to revolve around him. There is nothing in the middle. You've got to make a decision. He either is who he claimed to be or else he's this depraved, wicked lunatic. You either need to fall at his feet in absolute adoration or effectively join in the nailing him to the cross, join in his crucifixion. Really, this is what this passage in Hebrews is saying. There is nothing in the middle. You've got to be extreme. Jesus kind of forces you to be extreme. Extremely loving. Extremely humble. Extremely devoted. Extremely worshipful. Extremely committed to him. That's the first implication of all of this. If it's true, We cannot ignore God's final word in Christ. Here's the second thing, very quickly. Don't drift away. Whatever you do, don't drift away. You see, the writer of Hebrews knows that the people he's writing to are prone to drift. And he can't promise them that everything is always going to go right. He can't guarantee that their lives are going to work out as they want them to. But what he can tell them is that Christ is greater than anything else they can obtain here on earth. And if they'd only see the value of Jesus, that would sustain them when everything else in their life is falling apart. At the end of the day, the ultimate object of faith isn't what Christ can do for you. is Christ himself. And the message of Hebrews that we're going to be seeing over the next few months, again and again, the message is, he is enough. Later on in Hebrews, we'll get there eventually, chapter 11. The author talks about two kinds of people, two groups of people who experience vastly different things here on earth. Here's group number one. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of of people we've been looking at in the series in Judges recently. People like Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, others like David and Samuel, all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms ruled with justice, received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle, put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. Sure would agree, that's a great group to be in. But then he goes on, but others were tortured refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. Now I know what I'm thinking, Jesus please put me in group number one and I want him to, I want him to for you and for me. I'm not one of these people who feels like God delights in ruining our life, he sees into our minds, sees what we want and gives us the complete opposite or that somehow we should delight in some morbid way in our suffering. God is good, he's working salvation all around the earth. As I look around, I see so much evidence of the goodness, the kindness of God all around me. But ultimately, all that I'm really promised for the future is Christ. And so, I have to make up my mind. I have to determine whether He's going to be enough for me. Can you say that about Jesus? Jesus, you're enough for me you say that you need to make up your mind about about just how valuable Jesus is for you you need to decide if he's worth following anywhere let me close with this a friend many years ago once told me that I'd be wise to determine right then if there was ever any circumstance that I can imagine in which I'd be unfaithful to Helen my wife and if the answer was no I needed to start living intentionally as if that was true and never, ever, ever put myself in situations that would tempt me to go down a path, a route that I'd already decided in advance not to go down. Today, I simply want to ask you to decide if there's anything you could imagine ever leaving Christ for. Is he worth following? Is he worth forsaking everything for? Is he enough? And if he is, then today won't you lay everything down at his feet and tell him humbly, he's everything you need. Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Lord, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Lord, even though it's hard and I might think differently, I'll submit to your word in everything. And the reason why it's wise to determine that right now is there are going to be times in your life when following God is going to be very costly for you. It's going to be very painful, very challenging. It will involve sacrifice but the message pumping through all of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. He created, he sustains the whole universe He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's made a way for us to be cleansed of our sins once and for all. And right now he is seated in the place of the highest honour at the right hand of the majesty of the Father in heaven. So won't you hang on to him for dear life? Won't you refuse to ignore his words, submit to it in everything? And please, whatever you do, don't drift away.